This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new or newish in cinemas or on a streaming service, and that sends us in a deep dive to other films from days gone by. And before long, we filled an hour of time with movie talk. My name is Karsten Knox. I write a film blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, and I write for the culture section of the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Today on LMYE, we're talking defective detectives. We're looking at neo-noir and detective movies going back a ways and some from recent days. And that'll be for the next hour. We're detecting, we're watching, we're talking here on Lends Me Your Ears. Well, here we are on Lends Me Your Ears, taking a look at some of our favorite and maybe least known gumshoes, <laughs> our private eyes, detectives, dicks, flatfoots, Seamuses, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> they have a lot of nicknames. <laughs> it's, it's a rich subculture, the whole uh, private investigator on-screen racket. I, I, and it's, it's certainly uh, a type of film that I can watch from almost any decade of almost any quality, really. And uh, maybe because if very little bearing on reality, you know, I think I, I don't even know if there is like a private eye film that really gets to the heart of what an actual private investigator probably does on a regular basis. I, I, and I, I try not to, to romanticize it too much, which is what I think a lot of these movies tend to do, or they try to flip it on their ear and de-romanticize it, uh, as we'll see with the case of some of these films. But it certainly is an intriguing line of uh, storytelling that goes back to the silent film days. I mean, if you go back to uh, even Douglas Fairbanks did kind of a Sherlock Holmes spoof called The Case of the Leaping Fish, and Buster Keaton had Sherlock Jr., um, you know, as a, as a private detective. So it, it it's something that uh, has been with us for a long time cinematically, and like it's maybe not twin, but uh, maybe like the Western. It's one of those things that you think has gone away and you're not going to see any more detective movies ever again, and then all of a sudden there'll be like a handful of them putting a new fresh spin on the on the genre or the that style of storytelling and it, it's it's always enjoyable to me to see what uh what a new talent is going to do with with this kind of um this kind of story yeah yeah i've always been a big fan of them i mean my blog is named flaw in the iris and that's uh named after uh, a line from chinatown which is one of my favorite films and it's one of the great great noir detective stories uh private eye tales i i imagine that being a private detective is probably lonely and, and i mean a lot of these stories are about loneliness about the individual in a morally corrupt or at least uh degraded world and um and you know i expect there's a lot of waiting like I think people who who make a living private detecting sit and wait and watch. I mean that's probably a big part of the uh, of the job. That's true. And in fact, like apart from maybe the Thin Man movies, Nick and Nora Charles, uh, they they might be the only social <laughs> socially engaged <laughs> private eyes. I mean, you know, he's Nick Charles is a former detective who marries into society and you know, is trying to put that behind him and of course gets sucked into a case with every movie. Um, you know, but they had this big circle of friends and um, a lot of ne'er-do-well kind of uh, characters that keep popping up in their lives and so on. Um, but you're right, for the most part, it's it's about the the loner, the 
the you know the down at his heels investigator who's hasn't had a case in weeks and you know is trying to pay the rent and all that kind of thing when in walks into the door of the office walks a, you know a dame with a problem or whatever it's it's uh it's a story we've seen that's told so many different times and you, you think it can only be sold told so many different ways but uh every decade has kind of a fresh take on uh, on the story this there's, there's so many films that we could have talked about today we've got a list you know of about maybe you know maybe nine or ten films that we're probably going to talk about but but of course we could have done you know four or five times that many oh yeah i mean if we had gone back to the you know the big ones from the 40s the 30s and 40s uh from the maltese falcon the big sleep or double indemnity all those ray chandler adaptations we could have done the whole thin man series that went on for for quite a while i think there were five or six of those and a tv Um, series and a TV series. There you go. And I mean, some from my youth. Uh, I, I remember one of my favorite detective stories from my teenage years was Angel Heart, the sort of part detective, part supernatural film with Mickey Rourke, maybe the most defective detective in history. Um, or even the, you know, the Coen brothers, Big Lebowski. I mean, let's face it, that is also deeply indebted to these kinds of movies. Well, the, the Coen brothers kind of return to this every so often. I mean, the Big Lebowski is the most obvious example, but also Hail Caesar, in a way, is a detective movie. And uh, even Miller's Crossing, you know, owes a debt to uh, Dashiell Hammett, who, of course, created Sam Spade and the Maltese Falcon and basically, you know, kind of with Raymond Chandler sort of set the template for these kind of hard-boiled crime slash film noir kind of stories. I, I'm trying to think of what my earliest exposure to this kind of thing might be. I I, I feel like I might have seen parodies of detective movies before I saw an actual one. I, I remember as a kid going to see The Cheap Detective, the Neil Simon Humphrey Bogart parody starring Peter Falk. And I think at some point I saw Murder by Death as well, which has sort of big name actors doing spoof versions of, of famous detectives from uh, from films and uh, and fiction. And and uh, and that kind of eased my way into seeing the real thing and to finally seeing the Maltese Falcon and the big sleep and 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 so on. But it's 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 sort of comforting to see that there is still a fondness for these films that, um, you know, it, it, that manifests itself in new entertainment like something like Knives Out, for example, which is basically a, an update of an Agatha Christie kind of story. Um, or or some of these films that we're just about to talk about uh, featuring sort of younger characters uh, figuring out mysteries. Yeah, absolutely. And you were the one who pointed me to The Kid Detective, which was a film I guess I was aware of. It got a minor release. I think it was in cinemas for a couple of weeks uh, in the fall. It's a Canadian film. It's now on demand. And it's written and directed by Evan Morgan. I think he's a first-time feature filmmaker. And it's about Abe Applebaum, who's a pride of his town of Willowbrook, or at least he was. Uh, this was shot in North Bay, Ontario. I'm not sure how often North Bay has played a, been a, a setting for a feature film, but that's also pretty fresh. Um, back when he was 12, uh, he was played by Jesse Noah Grumman, this boy genius, brilliant at solving mysteries. He'd lie awake at, white, at night wondering if he was the smartest person in the world. But now he's an adult played by Adam Brody, and what was once precocious is now either creepy or lame. Uh, He's still making a living as a detective, but he's got a goth assistant played by Sarah Sutherland and a habit of forgetting what day it is. He's just kind of a little bit in a fog. The the noirish inheritance is here, but only if Sam Spade was someone who peaked in junior high and was haunted by past laurels with his parents, played by Wendy Crewson and Jonathan Whitaker, 
who find him slightly pathetic. Uh, so his case is uh, teenage Caroline, played by Sophie Nelis, who was the best part of the book thief, I thought. She hires Abe to find out who killed her boyfriend. He was a star pupil, so he couldn't have been mixed up in anything untoward, right? So they get together, and Abe and Caroline shake down the local bad kids. They interview key townies, and the film skates along on this sort of light comedic script and unleashes the odd laugh-out-loud line, occasionally dipping towards something darker. And I think that's what I found interesting about this film, this balance between a, a, a genuinely gritty undertone and the humor. And I think... The humor, I, I like them both. I like both elements. I don't know if they always worked well together. Um, I, I appreciated the question of identity and growing up that uh, Adam Brody's character sort of is trying to deal with all the time. And I like the mystery plotting. I thought that was pretty good. Um, I did feel sometimes that the, the laughs would have been, it would have been a broader comedy with a more uh, consistent improviser, like a comedic actor would have brought some of more of those laughs to the front. But uh, when it does get dramatic, I thought Brody was pretty good. Uh, yeah, so so I, I enjoyed the film. Yeah, I, I liked it. It's not completely successful, but it's it, it kind of touched a few sort of nostalgic nerves for me. I, I, I grew up reading The Hardy Boys and Encyclopedia Brown and these kind of things, these kid detectives and also the, the kind of Enid Blyton famous five kind of adventure books where these kids group of kids keeps stumbling across mysteries and having to solve them and that kind of thing. So it is kind of fun to surmise like, well, what happens to these kids when they grow up? You know, like they, they grow up around this life of crime or, you know, and, and then have to become adults and, you know, live normal lives. Well, of course, you know, they wouldn't as this uh, film puts ahead that Adam Brody, can't get past that uh, that youthful promise that he might have shown when he was solving, you know, the case of the lost library book or whatever kind of low rent minor league uh, mysteries he was solving as a kid. And then and then, of course, when when a friend of his vanishes mysteriously and is never found, you know, that kind of knocks the wind out of his sails, I guess, as far as being a teen detective goes. And he never gets over it. And that's sort of the cloud that's hanging over his head. And it's it's not even something we even think is going to factor into the plot really here. But it, it's uh you know, things gradually kind of come to light. And uh, I, I like the way that that past, you know, mystery he never solved kind of comes back, you know, two decades later or whatever it is. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it is a bit slight dramatically, I think, but I, I liked Adam Brody enough as this kind of hangdog loser, just can't shake his youthful identity. You know, I liked his performance enough to, that it kept me going through the film and, and plus people like Wendy Crewson and Jonathan Whitaker as his parents, you know, who just wanted to try and get on with his life. Uh, you know, that it, it made it pretty worthwhile for me. Yeah, you know, I'm with you there, I think. And I, I found, without being a spoiler, I did was a little confused by the ending. This is one of those pictures I feel like the emotional peak is about 15 or 20 minutes before the actual ending. And uh, yeah, that's you, get, true. you get a lot of a sort of post kind of post peak moments and i and i i felt like it it muddled some of the themes in a way for me and i i felt like the film was trying to be more sophisticated than maybe it actually was but uh i still i i i feel like this filmmaker has really you know come up with something fairly original here and uh and i'll look forward to seeing what he does next um if this is his first time at bat he's done pretty well uh doing something that uses a recognizable genre but then inserts something new and fresh to it so you know full full marks to that 
Yeah, and I like the North Bay setting too. I mean, it's not set in North Bay, but that's where it was filmed. And uh, I really got into the Canadian procedural Cardinal, which was also shot in the same locale, although usually in the wintertime when it's bleak and frozen and really miserable. So it's, it's nice to see it not quite so miserable in this case. Yeah, yeah. Now, another film with a young detective that I really liked, in fact, it was one of my favorite movies from last year, is a film called Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made. It's directed by Tom McCarthy, who is a filmmaker probably best known for Spotlight, the journalism uh, true life telling of uh, of what happened in Boston with the revelations of scandals in the Catholic Church. Uh, but he'd done other films as well, like The Visitor and The Station Agent. Uh, Tom McCarthy is a real talent. I try and see pretty much everything that he does. And this time out, he's directed an adaptation of a kid's book. Timmy Failure, played by Winslow Fegley, is an 11-year-old detective. He sports a red scarf because it's not what the normals do. He takes his job as an investigator very seriously. He's a little like Tracer Bullet, the hard-boiled private eye of Calvin and Hobbes fame. <laughs> and like like Calvin, Timmy is has a wild animal partner. Toto is a 1,500-pound polar bear who showed up in his kitchen to sample his cereal one morning. Now, Timmy li- lives in Portland, Oregon, And Portland plays a big part in this story. It's very vividly shot with all the exteriors. I really feel like I got a travel log experience what Portland must be like. Um, And Timmy lives with his mom, Patty, played by Olivia Lovabond, who is British, but you'd never know it. She hides her accent excellently. Now, this Portland of this film is rife with corruption and crime and Timmy's on the trail of a missing backpack, a purse snatcher, a stolen Segway, even Russian spies, all while his mother is collaborating with law enforcement, a a meter maid named Crispin, played by Kyle Bornheimer. I love the film. I think it's really, really charming, and uh, I, I enjoyed... I had no idea where it was going. I wasn't familiar with this material previously. And, uh, you know, it stars Wallace Shawn as one of Timmy's teachers, I really like that uh, that the film works sort of on two levels. It's a live-action, easygoing Disney picture, very much in effect, but it's also wildly funny and has this really sharp comedy uh, and is clear-eyed about the effort that Timmy and his noirish imagination uh, puts together, you know, in his world. he's He's got a kind of a dark vision, and uh, I think it juggles these things really well. Yeah, it's so funny. I, like, Tom McCarthy is kind of one of the last, people I would have thought would pull off a Disney family movie <laughs> and uh, and the fact that it has so much imagination and humor and warmth in it is is just a, a real bonus that uh, you know I, I thought well we're a long way from the Apple dumpling gang and Herbie the love bug <laughs> this, this is a you know a real genuine treat and not you know cartoonish or forced but it but but there is a strong sort of imaginative a fantasy element to it which i really liked uh, it it's a bit like a like a sort of elementary school secret life of walter mitty in a way uh it has that kind of charm and that that sort of imagination as he has these little fantasy moments uh throughout the course of the film and and it's so well cast craig robinson is great too as his i think as his guidance counselor who's trying to show him the way and you know meanwhile Timmy Failure thinks he's just gonna he's he's gonna be done with school after grade five. He's not gonna have any more <laughs> more, more use for it. And yeah, I, I just I, I thought it was really charming. I, I thought uh, Winslow was great as the character. He's just he's so committed to portraying this kind of deadpan Jack Webb esque kid. Um, 
that uh, you know I, I kept wondering if he's going to break and and he, he he doesn't really over the course of the film just stuff like the, you know the the girl he obviously has a crush on but doesn't want to admit it who he refers to as the nameless one and you know they, they actually blank <laughs> yeah. out her face in the film until he has to actually kind of deal with it and deal with her and and so on and yeah the, the, it's just uh there's there's a lot going on in this film to like and it's it's rare that uh we get to see a a family movie that actually is legitimately enjoyable by anyone of any age yeah absolutely i 100 percent agree uh and i felt that way also about enola holmes now we could do a whole episode about sherlock holmes movies oh, for certainly sure. i think i think we've talked about it as a matter of fact i mean uh, i think we didn't we talk about it at some point oh i'm sure we have yeah yeah uh and of course sherlock holmes is the original defective detective right he's he's brilliant he's peerless but he also is a deeply troubled character and uh enola holmes is also based in a series of books uh and it's about Sherlock Holmes's smarter sister, I guess. And she's, kind of, she's yeah. kind of, she's, she's um, played by Millie Bobby Brown, who fans of, of Stranger Things will of course recognize. And she's been raised in a rambling country mansion by a free thinking woman, Eudoria played by Helena Bonham Carter. She's been taught history and wordplay and Shakespeare and jujitsu. But when Eudoria disappears, it leaves Enola in the care of her more bureaucratic, less adored brother, Mycroft, played by Sam Claflin, excuse me. And uh, yeah, it prompts the teen detective to escape to London to seek her missing mother, only to cross paths with the, on the train with the young Lord Tewksbury, played by Lewis Partridge, who's running for his life from a bad man in a brown bowler, the always welcome Burn Gorman. Uh, and there's a lot of fun here. Like, I saw this, I guess, when it came out on Netflix in September, and it was exactly what I was in the mood for because I was really missing some of the big summer blockbusters, and this has all the energy of you know a big screen escapism. Uh, and I, yeah, I really recommend Enola Holmes to anybody who is feeling like something light, something fun, uh, and very, very English. Probably as as uh, you know as English as the Paddington movies, I would say. Oh yeah, very much so. It's I. I- I feel like this is probably at some point going to be a, a theatrical release. And then I think once they realized that, uh, that that was probably not a great idea. And the fact that, uh, um, you know, Millie Bobby Brown is, is not getting any younger <laughs> as it were like, you know, she's by the time it actually was able to play in theaters, she would be quite a bit older and, and maybe, you know, the chance of maybe doing a sequel or something additional with this character might, might not be as, as possible. Um, you know, they, I think maybe they opted for Netflix. I don't know if that's how it went, but, but uh, you know, I love the fact that apparently it was Millie Bobby Brown and her sister, um, you know, loved the books and they basically took the idea to, uh, I think the producers of the Godzilla films that, uh, that she was in uh, or after she was in Godzilla King of the Monsters, she approached the producers of that film said, you know, we should make a film out of this. And uh, and basically took the bull by the horns and and is, was kind of the driving force behind this movie, which I think is pretty amazing for her. And I think speaks a lot to what kind of career she's going to have down the road. I think that, you know, she's very focused on developing her own projects at a, at a very early age. And I think that's pretty amazing. So uh, and, you know, th- this one is so delightful that I'm hoping that she kind of has an eye on. On, on, on having an interesting variety of projects for herself down the road. And of course it's directed by um, Harry Bradbeer, who uh, is mostly done British TV, but he, he did, 
I think all, if not most, or most, if not all of Fleabag, which is one of the best comedies of the last decade or so. So, uh, yeah, he definitely has a, a good touch for this material, which is, which is light, but also, you know, uh, full of lots of daring do and forward momentum. And it's, it's yeah, very enjoyable and definitely worth checking out on Netflix. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And it's also very political. I enjoyed that it was so feminist. It turns out Eudoria is this militant activist suffragette prepared to use violence in order to achieve equality. And that's not ever presented as less than heroic, um, but it's delivered with such charm and in such light touch. Uh, Yeah, I would watch a whole series, a whole franchise of Enola Holmes. So I hope that they keep making them. Gangster Terry Lennox stops by the L.A. apartment of his buddy, private detective Philip Marlowe, at 3.30 in the morning. But it's fine, because Marlowe was up anyway, getting cat food for his demanding orange cat, and brownie mix for his neighbors, a group of young women with, let's say, a casual relationship with clothing. And uh, that's how the long goodbye starts. I thought I would try my, you know... (laughs) Moirish <laughs> private detective voice there. Um, so effective. yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, so we're talking on Lens Me Your Ears today about detective stories going back a ways. I think we're this segment's going to be mostly about the ones that were made in the 1970s. And The Long Goodbye is one of the best, if not the best from the era. It's directed by Robert Altman. It's written by Lee Brackett. It's from the Raymond Chandler novel. So here... Philip Philip Marlowe has been updated as uh, you know the very recognizable star Elliot Gould, and he was a big star at the time. But it's such a strange fit when you think about the Philip Marlowe of previous films and previous stories, and even other stories that we're going to get to here in this segment um, from the seventies. And uh, but I, I I remember when I first saw this film, I didn't know what to make of it because it is such a departure in so many ways. But watching it now, I've seen it three times. I love it the more, every time I watch it, I I get into the pace of it more and I sort of understand better what Altman was trying to do. Uh, So Terry asks for Marlowe for a lift to Tijuana because Marlowe's an old buddy, he does it. And then the next morning, Marlowe's arrested for aiding and abetting Terry who's been charged with murdering his wife. They throw Marlowe in jail, but then... Terry kills himself in Mexico and they let Marlowe out. There's no case. Every, everything's done. Everyone's dead. So now uh, Marlowe's got a case. Uh, he's got to find a missing man, an alcoholic who hasn't gone to his usual places to dry out. And then there's Marty Augustine, who is a nasty piece of work. He's another gangster who says Terry has stolen $355,000 from him and he wants Marlowe to find it. Now, of course, all of these threads are all going to tie together at some point in the story. Uh, this is a movie with a lot of independent animals in it, stray cats and dogs, and kind of like Marlowe in some ways, who doesn't have a voiceover in this film, but he does talk to himself a lot, so you know what's on his mind. And he says, it's okay with me a whole lot, <laughs> yes. but it's it's really not okay with him. He is upset by what he's been told about his friend, and he wants to get to the truth about why he died, and he is a dogged Detective, uh, and I really liked Elliot Gould in this role, and and I really also liked Sterling Hayden as the angry alcoholic. Uh, what did you make of this film? I, I'm guessing it's probably one of your favorites, Stephen. It's definitely an all-time favorite. It's one of those films I have to watch once a year. Uh, I keep going back to it. <laughs> Amazing, because it, it's it it you know it just it does like a lot of Altman films. There's there's always a lot going on. You know, it's stuff in the background and 
offhand jokes that maybe don't register the first time through and 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 plot threads that don't necessarily pay off the first time they they arise and, and this is certainly a film that's it, it's got a typically convoluted detective plot again it's it's a detective story that isn't really interested in film noir style very much um you know it's more concerned with with upending a lot of the cliches of of the genre and giving us like a private eye who is not a tough guy at all um you know the, the philip marlowe you think of him you know with a fedora and a revolver in his hand or whatever and and but he really is just kind of at the mercy of everybody else that he encounters along the way here i mean he's 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 not dumb he's he's a smart private eye but uh you know he just comes up against one crazy character after another that he has to kind of figure out how to negotiate you know whether it's sterling hayden's bull of a drunken writer or you know a, this sort of a very oblique uh, doctor played by Henry Gibson, who's a, uh, an Altman regular. I'm always happy to see, you know, or, or Mike Rydell's Marty Augustine, who's really one of the great film characters for the ages as, as this, uh, you know, nut bar gangster, you know, and it's just, it is kind of interesting to see him brought into the seventies in a, in a way that, that actually works. Uh, I mean, Altman famously referred to, this version of the character as Rip Van Marlowe is, is how he described it. <laughs> like, like Philip Marlowe kind of went to sleep in 1953 and then woke up 20 years later and is back in business. He drives around in a, uh, you know, like a late forties, uh, you know, coupe and, and, uh, he's always smoking and he, he has some element of the past and yet he seems like a very modern day, postmodern kind of character at the same time so he's 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 full of all these contradictions that kind of help him navigate this bizarre clash of uh times and and um and characters and yeah it's it's like a puzzle like (laughs) i'm always continually solving um every time i watch it and uh, i i really enjoy coming back to it uh just so many great moments and and you know things like the fact that you keep hearing the theme song over and over <laughs> yeah, throughout the absolutely. film. And I don't think, I, I certainly didn't pick up on that the first time I watched this movie. I mean, the first time I watched this movie would have been on like a television broadcast version with commercials. And they actually cut out most of the references to the cat. His cat goes missing early in the film and it's sort of a thread through the movie. And in order to cut it to fit a two hour time slot with commercials, all the references to the cat got taken out and so the first time i saw it i had no idea what the last line in the film means so because he it basically you know it all wraps up with him talking about the cat at the end and mm. and uh of course which makes no sense you know if they you don't even know that the cat is missing you know early on in the film so it's just uh it's so multi-layered and it, i think the fact that lee brackett had a hand in the screenplay and that robert altman you know who's famous for having his actors improvise and go off book and kind of you know, take their own approach to things. Here, I think he he really liked the script and didn't want to deviate too much from it. And Lee Brackett worked on The Big Sleep. Like she she was a screenwriter who worked on The Big Sleep, but then also worked on The Empire Strikes Back, which is just an amazing career to contemplate to go from The Big Sleep to The Empire Strikes Back and to have the long goodbye kind of smack dab in the middle of 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 these amazing films. So I think. Bracket script probably brings a certain amount of authenticity, but then the setting and Altman's kind of restless directorial style and the 70s settings and the cast of characters um, kind of f- foots it firmly in the, in the early 70s. And 
it's I mean it's so funny but then you know when it gets serious it gets really serious and and uh yeah it's it's something that I I think it's it's a good entry-level Altman film too for people who haven't experienced his work on a, on a large scale this is a great film to kind of get into his uh body of work as well oh yeah absolutely and uh I think what you said about the song, I mean, that is is so funny how he's he's listening to it in the car. He goes into a late night grocery store. It's playing like a Muzak version is playing over the sound system. The guy at the bar is playing it on the piano. It's just everywhere is the long goodbyes playing. And I just, I love that bit. And I love the sort of little nods to Hollywood, like the um, the guy at the, the gate of this sort of housing development who keeps doing these versions of, of movie stars, his impersonating, his impressions of movie stars for everyone who drives through. Um, there's stuff like that. There's a lot of characters. It's very character-driven in a way that that these movies rarely are. So I think that's another reason to recommend it. Yeah, I think I, I, there was a lot of anger around this film at the time it came out because it, it people felt it wasn't being true to Raymond Chandler. But, you know, you have the big sleep. You don't, you don't need another version of the big sleep. You need a fresh take on it. And I think by including the, 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 the Malibu colony, uh, you know, the guard who does the impressions and, and starting off with a bit of hooray for Hollywood at the very start of the film, Alban's making it clear that he's not making fun of old Hollywood or, or making fun of detective movies. He's, you know, he appreciates them for what they are, but he's giving it his, his own take on it. And uh, I think that's pretty apparent when you watch it now. And and if you're an Arnold Schwarzenegger completist, you kind of need to see this. Film too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. He shows up. He doesn't have a line, but he shows up. Um, exactly. So, you know, you're talking about a more formal and uh, deliberate homage to Chandler. Uh, there's also Farewell, My Lovely from 1975, directed by Dick Richards, who I whose work I'm not familiar with. I wondered whether actually that was a pseudonym because really Dick Richards. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> so this one's actually set in 1941. And aside from the color film, it's almost a cliche. It's the kind of hard boiled thing that Roger Rabbit ended up making fun of. But uh, here. Marlowe is a lot older, essayed by Robert Mitchum, and aging is the first thing he complains about when he arrives on screen. And we get Harry Dean Stanton as a cop, and Jack O'Halloran, who I've known my whole life as a Kryptonian villain from Superman, he plays a thug named Moose Malloy. Uh, and so Moose hires, Mit- hires Mitchum's uh, Marlowe to find his long-lost girlfriend, Velma. And while on Velma's trail, a fellow named Marriott wants protection in a deal, money for jewelry, and that goes south. And of course, it's very likely, without getting into spoilers, that all of these cases might somehow be related. Uh, that's I feel like the model for these stories is that there's these various threads at the beginning that all seem unconnected that wind up tying up. Uh, I, I liked... Farewell, My Lovely, quite a lot, even though in some ways it is a bit of a pastiche. Um, It impressed me with being honest about casual racism and homophobia in America. I mean, it's set in the 1940s, but, you know, even in the 1970s, I'm sure it wasn't that different. Uh, And I really liked seeing Charlotte Rampling. When she shows up, her eyes, her green eyes and the jade necklace she's wearing, which is a big part of the story, just just incredible. I mean, she's just such a potent presence on screen. Uh, and speaking of action heroes of the 80s, <laughs> yes. a young Sylvester Stallone also shows up as a thug. He doesn't have a line either, but he makes an impression with a pistol. So, uh, yeah, what did you make of Farewell, My Lovely, Stephen? It's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I feel like they somebody made this film 
purely in reaction to farewell my to um the long goodbye i feel like somebody was so offended by the take on philip marlowe that uh elliot gould and robert altman gave us that they they felt the need to make a very by the book marlowe movie and then cast rather perfectly robert mitchum in the in the role so you know it's obviously a lot more retrograde than the long goodbye but uh but it does you know capture the flavor pretty well the, there are times where it it's a little creaky around the edges. I, I find that it's a bit flat cinematically. You know, there, there are times where the sound is kind of bad, like it's like bad on location sound or something like that. It feels like a, you know, even though the production design is is really well done, I feel like like it looks great, but then certain elements of it let me down. So it doesn't completely work for me, but it's, it's nice to see people like Mitchum and John Ireland as the cop. John Ireland is a really reliable film noir actor you know definitely brings a, a little of authority to his role as nulty the detective and harry dean stanton of course is is great as his uh his kind of cohort uh and joe spinell another great character actor who shows up here i i feel like it's incredibly well cast and everybody is uh is kind of on point for for their characters you know i i i, I do wish it was had a little more snap to it stylistically but as far as telling a straightforward detective story about this aging and perhaps past his prime Philip Marlowe. Uh, I think it does a pretty good job. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that uh, Robert Mitchum at this point was kind of cruising, right? Late in his career, he, he didn't seem to be making a whole lot of effort, but that kind of vibe really works for this character, I think. And uh, there's a scene, a none more campy psychedelic scene when Marlowe gets shot full of hop, oh, yeah. which, uh, which is pretty cheesy, you know, in retrospect. Uh, but uh, yeah, I really liked him and I would sort of follow him around anyway. I really enjoyed that even though he has his own code and he clearly wants to do a, a job that he hates, but he has to do it because it's the job, it's the way his life has gone. He's more interested in Joe DiMaggio's home run record than than the case that he's on. That I also appreciated. Um, so, all right. So before we wrap up our time in the 70s, we have a couple more things maybe we should mention. One is Peeper, from also from 1975, directed by Peter Hyams. And this is also partly comedic, partly serious, kind of a satire noir, while also trying to be true to them. I, I enjoyed the tone of the film and the snappy patter, but I felt like the script could have used a, little more, a few more passes. And this one stars Michael Caine as, a, as Leslie Tucker. He's a detective in 1947 L.A., and uh, a very demanding man wants him to find the little girl he gave up for adoption 30 years earlier. She may have been adopted into a wealthy family where the uncle is trying to extort the family millions from his sister with the knowledge that one of the daughters is adopted or something. It's, it's all a little confusing. I find, find it all a little bit hard to follow. Uh, but, uh, you know, and that's one thing about detective movies I think is really important, with probably the exception of... Fair, of uh, uh, the long goodbye, and you know, and even there, it's it's the case. Maybe it's just a, a sense of the plot having to be locked tight. Where by the end, we have to understand the motivations of all the characters. And I'm not sure I did in Peeper, but you know, Michael Caine is is charming enough. He's just an odd to hear a Cockney accent in Los Angeles. And I really liked Natalie Wood as one of the one of the potential the daughters who might have ended up being an adoptee. So yeah, Peeper, Peeper, I don't think is essential, but but interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely maybe less than the sum of its parts. Uh, I mean, Michael Caine is always fun to watch, and 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 here, I mean, it's the mid seventies. He's he's 
kind of in in his prime in a lot of ways. Uh, and he's having fun with the part. Obviously, Peter Hyams is not really anybody's idea of a great director. Uh, maybe uh, Outland, his High Noon in Space, the Sean Connery might be his best film, I guess. Um, but uh, he would actually his next film after Peeper would be. Elliot Gould in Capricorn One. Oh, I, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Capricorn One. I'll say I'll just put that out there. <laughs> well, you know, as far as sci-fi mystery thrillers go, <laughs> it's, it's not bad. But 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 here it's it's kind of a loose assemblage of uh, of ideas borrowed from other films, and I I enjoyed it while I was watching. But it, it does have a problem with tone. It's, sometimes it's highly comedic, and then other times it's trying to do the serious detective thing and it kind of bounces back and forth. Uh, I mean, you've got uh, Liam Dunn, who is the preacher in Blazing Saddles here as as the kind of sleazy, creepy lawyer who's kind of bound, always seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and is like a, you know, a highly comedic role. But then you have Timothy Carey as a pretty evil kind of hoodlum named Sid. And it's great to see Timothy Carey in anything, really. So this, this is one I would have maybe approach with caution knowing that it's not gonna it's you know if you're jonesing for a detective movie you haven't seen before that might be the reason you watch it but don't uh don't necessarily expect something that's gonna become a an unheralded classic <laughs> that's i think fair i think that's fair steven uh, i'll also apply that to the next film we're going to talk about though i think you like this one more than i do and that's the late show in 19 from 1977 starring art carney and lily tomlin Carney plays a detective named Ira Wells, who used to be one of the great detectives of Los Angeles. We know this because he keeps telling us over and over. He's very grumpy about being old, best I can tell. And his erstwhile partner, Harry, shows up and he's been shot. So when Harry dies, we learn that he was working for, looking for a cat belonging to Margot Sterling. There's the cat theme coming back again. Margot is played by Lily Tomlin. She owed a dude $500, and when she didn't pay, the dude took her cat. So to me, I mean, oh, that's that's kind of an intense thing to do. But, you know, also, you know, it's it's sort of fair. And the first thing that Ira does when she explains this is she, he says, just pay pay this guy. And, of course, uh, Margot can't. And so uh, what Ira really wants to know is who killed his friend, his buddy Harry. And he's willing to work with Margot in order to find out who that was. So this kicks off this idiosyncratic comedy thriller. I appreciated that it wasn't really broad, that there's a shot of Ira, Art Carney, walking down the street carrying a bag full of laundry. And one of those shirts that he's, is covered in blood because he's just come from a scene where he got the crap beaten out of him. <laughs> and uh, I appreciated how down on their luck that these characters are. Like so many people on the grift just to make ends meet. And they've all been inserted into this world, this sort of noirish detective world. But really, you know, it's the mid 70s and none of these people are, they're barely making a living. Like they're, they're all, they've all got trouble. And I, I like that about it. I like that feeling of grit that, that this felt like a real place as opposed to a romanticized era. But um, I had a hard time warming up to the leads. I got to say, I felt like they're just yelling at each other all the time. And I didn't find, although I'm a big fan of Lily Tomlin, I didn't think she was very charming or very funny. So uh, I just found them kind of hard to take. But uh, but Stephen, I'm really interested in hearing what you thought about it because I know you you, you introduced me to the film and you suggested it to, to talk about. Yeah, I like this film quite a bit. It was, uh, I mean, it was originally going to be directed by Robert Altman, oddly enough. And I guess he just felt he'd done his detective movie. and and uh, But he, he stayed on as a producer. And I, you know, I guess Lily Tomlin, who has been in uh, 
you know, a few uh, Altman films. I guess her presence is kind of the main signifier of, of anything sort of Altman-esque about it. Uh, and uh, handed it over to Robert Benton, who, who'd only made one, only directed one film previously, uh, a really wonderful sort of modern Western called Bad Company. But um, also he was kind of best known as the screenwriter of Bonnie and Clyde. So there's, there is some serious talent involved behind the camera. And I, I just felt there was a weird offbeat chemistry between Lily Tomlin and Art Carney. Yeah, they do kind of yell at each other quite a bit, but I like the contrast between them. And and Carney, you know, like obviously he's, you know, again, as we've seen with uh, Marlowe in Farewell, My Lovely, he's too old for this game, you know, and it's, it's you know, it's but it's the only thing he knows how to do. And, you know, there's that weird friendship with Bill Macy, who's kind of his frenemy, I guess, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. And, and, you know, Bill Macy from Maud, it's nice to see him have a sort of a sizable role as this kind of nattering, annoying uh, schmo who's, who's, who's kind of at Art Carney's heels all the time. And I, I like the fact that it's, it's, um, you know, again, it, it, we're in the world of the private detective, but it's really dog-eared around the edges and de-romanticized and and kind of grimy and and you know unenviable in a lot of ways, and that's what I kind of like about it. And Lily Tallman, I felt, just gives it kind of a a bit of a modern spunk, as this she's kind of this post hippie Los Angeles um, new age type who injects kind of a different flavor into the film, for for lack of a better word. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Well, on this third and final segment of Lens Me Your Ears, we're going to drag the detective movie kicking and screaming into uh, into modern day. Not necessarily the 21st century, because one of our films is from 1998, but but still relatively modern. And uh, we're going to start with a Zero Effect, uh, a kind of a cult sleeper film from 1998, directed by Jake Kasdan, son of writer-director Lawrence Kasdan, a great Hollywood talent, uh, also involved with The Empire Strikes Back, obviously enough. This was uh, Jake Kasdan's uh, directorial debut. He wrote and directed the film. Most of his work since then has been, for the most part, in uh, TV, things like Freaks and Geeks and New Girl. Uh, most recently, he did two Jumanji sequels, which may or may not be uh, living up to the promise of, of this particular film, but uh, you know they're they're fun enough for what they are. But, uh, but here, basically, he's doing kind of a hipster update of Sherlock Holmes with Bill Pullman as Daryl Zero, who's ostensibly the world's most brilliant detective, but he's also kind of an agoraphobic. He doesn't like to leave his apartment, which is heavily fortified and lined with uh, 90s era computer technology. And, uh, you know, he, he's, but he's, he's got brilliant deductive skills apparently. And, and, you know, then impressive use of, uh, of computers and finding out information and his hapless uh, Watson to his homes is Ben Stiller as Steve Arlo, who has to basically do all the grunt work in terms of contacting clients and, 
you know, jetting about from place to place to gather information and that kind of thing. And uh, in this case, his uh, current client is a businessman in Portland, Oregon. We're back in Portland. I don't, I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Timmy Failure, but um, here we have uh, <laughs> Ryan O'Neill is uh, businessman Gregory Stark, who's being blackmailed for uh, for something that happened uh, decades ago. And uh, he hires Daryl Zero to find out who's blackmailing him and to basically make the blackmailing stop. But of course, we find out that the blackmailer might be uh, might have some justification for what they're doing, and uh, it becomes a little more emotionally complex for the detective and his client, and and also for Arlo as as things go along. And uh, this is a film that uh, you know is probably fondly remembered by the few who saw it uh, twenty three years ago, but it's not one that's generally um, thought of these days. But I, I think it's one that's worth a look, and I know that you didn't have us. Uh, have the same kind of fondness for its quirks, but but uh, tell me what you thought, Carson, about this uh, particular take on the detective story. That that is fair. I I would say that the new recent Jumanji films I enjoyed a lot more than this one. Um, oh. <laughs> I would say that uh, part of the problem is the it's not the script, which I think is fine, or even the direction. Uh, the mystery I think holds interest. There are some good performances. I think Kim Dickens of Deadwood fame as Gloria. She's really good. And when she arrives in the film, it gets a lot better because her connection with Daryl Zero is brings a little bit of warmth and heat to the, the story. But I think that Bill Pullman is painfully miscast. As Hollywood eventually found out, he's a passable character actor in support. But he's really dull as a lead and he cannot carry the film. And I just thought, I just found him irritating and unconvincing as this genius sleuth. Um, Stiller, although he's not a terribly likable guy in this, he at least has some charisma, which Pullman generally doesn't. And that's why the film didn't work for me. You are speaking about our Independence Day president, may I say. (laughs) (laughs) Another movie that I can't understand why people like. Yeah, I think Independence Day is terrible. So there you go. Well, here he doesn't get a computer virus in his uh, many, many banks of, of PCs around his apartment. I, I, I can sort of see that. I, I mean, I've always found Bill Pullman fairly likable. Uh, I could see how someone more dynamic in the role Daryl Zero might have been a, a better choice. And as we were talking about before we rolled tape on segment three here, I learned that there was actually a TV pilot that came out a few years later based on this film with Alan Cumming as Daryl Zero. And Alan Cumming, of course, is a very interesting British actor who probably would have brought a lot more energy and spark to the to the character and, and to this, you know, as a possible TV franchise. I'd be very curious to see that pilot and see how it stands up compared to the film. But I, I, I did like the mystery. I like Kim Dickens a lot. She really grounds this film with uh, a fairly, for these kind of movies, a fairly believable realistic character maybe that's just her style of acting but i think she's also pretty well written i mean she's a she's a paramedic she's an interesting independent woman who um who, like you say when once she arrives on the scene re- you know really kind of gives the film the life that it needs and i, I guess maybe i was taken with its sort of postmodern sherlock holmes uh kind of bent the fact that it's, it's basically a Sherlock Holmes story just with the characters names changed and it taking place in Portland instead of uh, rainy Portland instead of uh, rainy London. Yeah, I, I appreciate that too. I think once I learned that it was, it was a based loosely based on a Sherlock Holmes story, I got more interested in it. But I think as far as buddy detective stories go, I'd be more likely to recommend like a recent, recent films like kiss, kiss, bang, bang, or the nice guys, which are both, both we could have talked about on this show. They certainly have a lot more zip. That's yeah. for sure. Uh, so, 
I want to move on to Brick from 2005. This is Ryan Johnson's first feature, and it remains a jaw-dropping effort from the filmmaker who went on to give us Looper and Star Wars The Last Jedi and the awesome Knives Out, uh, as you mentioned that one earlier. Uh, Brick is set in a California high school. Not so much the classrooms, but the spaces outside, the fields, the lockers, and behind the school where the bad kids get high and make deals. And it stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a single-minded gumshoe, Brendan Fry. He's an outsider, but he's driven by his love for Emily, played by Emily DeRaven, who recently broke up with him because Brendan is just too much of a misanthrope. When she disappears, he wants to find her, and soon he finds her while she's dead. In fact, at the top of the start of the movie, she's dead, and we sort of flash back to the previous couple of days. And Brendan starts to piece together a labyrinth and plot through the halls of his high school, involving a femme fatale, Laura, played by a compelling Nora Zetner, and a babyface gangster called The Pin, played by <laughs> Lucas Haas, various thugs, and even Richard Roundtree as the vice principal. Brendan has an in-school associate he calls The Brain, who rumor has it might just be a figment of his imagination. The dialogue here is incredibly hard-boiled without sounding like it's aping any particular movie. It's full of jargon and slang, but it still ends up sounding fresh and largely comprehensible. That was the thing I liked the most about the film, I think. The, just the, the language that that Johnson uses here just is amazing. And every time I, every time I rewatch it, it's just, I marvel at the construction and the use of the language. And also this, this location stuff, which doesn't feel like any kind of detective movie I've ever seen before, even while it echoes Miller's Crossing or the Maltese Falcon or even moments Blade Runner. Yeah. I think if you, ha- if you're interested in detective movies and you haven't seen Brick, absolutely make a point of checking it out it is wonderful and there's a there's a great kino lorber blu-ray of it available that i would recommend yeah i i need to get a a good copy of this film i watched it for free on the roku channel but i saw when it came out too i mean i've seen this film a couple times before now and uh, it's great to revisit uh and i'm I'm sure i'll be watching it again down the road at, at and it's clear that uh ryan johnson loves the material that he's basing his film on but also you know wants to do it justice and do it something fresh. Uh, I, you know, I read a piece on him where he talks about the film and how he wanted to make a film noir shot in the style of a spaghetti western. So he's basically doing this mashup of of two of his favorite genres. So it's a detective story, but um, with the kind of close ups and a kind of extreme kind of uh, visual setups of, of a of a european western from the 60s and it's and i i don't think i'd read that before and it watching it now with that in mind i can totally see it uh and maybe that's part of the reason why it uh it doesn't feel rote or uh, or tired or just like a you know a, a straight up homage to uh the films that he loves and i i gather he wrote it in high school like like this is like a screenplay he just kind of kept hammering away at until he could finally uh make it himself and and i i feel like it it has been well, uh, well honed and well, uh, well worked on to the point where it really is kind of like a, a bit of a ticking watch, uh, which is uh, a nice feeling. And it's nice to see uh, Shaft, Richard Roundtree, show up as the assistant vice vice principal of the school. Uh, there's a there's a connection to a detective uh, from years gone by that's nice to see. And 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 Gordon Levitt is great. He takes a terrible beating. Uh, he his his character. Uh, portrayal is nicely kind of uh what's the word uh, not modified but it, but it's it's a very uh you know well-honed performance that doesn't 
go into parody or you know trying to be too genre specific and it's uh it's 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 really a marvel he plays it pretty cool until you know when he's truly in peril when those moments come along and and i really enjoyed watching him in this film oh yeah absolutely and those and he delivers those lines like i've got knives in my eyes and maybe i'll sit here and bleed at you <laughs> <laughs> or, or or the when he's talking to the the vice principal he says i gave you jer to see him eat not to see you fed like that kind of stuff is amazing, and there's a lot of humor in it too. It's it's uh, it's it's subtle, but the humor is wonderful. I laughed out loud a number of times in this film, including uh, the character of, May- of Kara, played by Megan Good, who constantly has freshmen under her doing what? Who knows? But he, you know, she's 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 got these these young younger boys following her around all the time. Yeah, this is this is a blast, and. Uh, now, we only have a few minutes left, Stephen, and I know we want to spare some time to talk about Inherent Vice from Paul Thomas Anderson, from the Thomas Pynchon novel. And uh, this is a film when it when I, I remember going to see it at Park Lane in 2015 when it played there. And I was really looking forward to it because I'm a fan of Anderson's, but I've kind of walked out scratching my head. It's long and it's, I mean, talk about complex plots i didn't know what was happening most of the time and now i've seen it a couple of times and i'm still not sure i understand what's what's going on but it is such a joy it is so funny and that's the thing i noticed watching it again is how funny a movie it is it's it's uh i'll let you see if i want to hear how you describe the plot Stephen, because i i don't know that i can do it justice Oh boy. Okay, here we go. Well, uh, <laughs> not to put you on the spot or anything. No, but. no, that's fine. That's fine. We uh, well, we open with uh, Doc Sportello, who's our our hero. He's not exactly a detective. He's more of a purveyor of uh, medicinal under the counter products um, for the most part. But he he does have a, a knack for getting into other people's messes. And in this case, it's his ex girlfriend Shasta Faye Hepworth, played by Catherine Waterston. who's, you know, I've enjoyed everything I've seen her in. And she's basically coming to him for advice. Um, She's gotten into a relationship with a married man who's a a big wig Los Angeles uh, developer named Michael Wolfman, played by Eric Roberts, of all people. So she's having an affair with him, but she's also kind of in cahoots with his wife, <laughs> uh, Sloan Wolfman, played by Serena Scott Thomas, sister of Kristen Scott Thomas, to kind of put him on the sidelines in an, uh, you know, in a hospital for uh, a kind of an asylum slash rest home, whatever you want to call it, and, and kind of basically take him for all he's worth. That plot gets caught up with uh, a bunch of Aryan bikers who are, <laughs> are caught up in a huge drug deal with something called the Golden Fang, which is either a huge um, Asian-American drug consortium or a boat that brings uh, brings drugs to the mainland. You know, it, it's it's kind of what the Golden Fang is, is kind of a, an amorphous um, kind of idea over the course of the film. And uh, it takes it seems to take many different forms. And uh, of course, it, through it all, uh, Sportello is constantly at odds with, uh, I'll, I'll use the word frenemy again, but uh, Lieutenant Detective Bigfoot Bjornsson in a very oversized portrayal by Josh Brolin. You know, they're they're either kind of collaborating or Brolin is beating the crap out of them. It's, it's, it goes kind of back and forth. And, and, and it, you know, again, it's, it's pinching, so it helps that everything is so oversized and, and kind of over the top and the comedy is, is played uh, at such a high pitch. It's, 
yeah, whether or not the plot is actually worth worrying about. I mean, going into this film, I thought, well, you know, how Pynchon has never been adapted for the screen before and probably never will be again. Whether or not Anderson does it justice or not is kind of beside the point. You know, is it going to be a good Anderson film? Is probably the main thing. And and I I really did enjoy it. Whether or not it all made sense at the time, I I I think it makes a little bit more sense. You know, watching it for the second or third time. But you know, just watching Joaquin Phoenix as Doc kind of get put through his paces over the course of the film is 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 pretty amusing. You know, it's it's. It's it's an interesting inverse of his character in The Master, you know, who's this kind of tightly wound, introverted uh, mess, and here he's this kind of loose, you know, post hippie waste product, <laughs> whatever. It's just kind of drifting through life, uh, and and gets caught up in this whirlwind of of strange occurrences and uh, oddball characters. And I, I just I just uh, I just loved watching it uh, unfold. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I, it took me a while to warm up to it, but I absolutely agree with you. I think he's great. It would make a great pairing with the big Lebowski because there are a lot of parallels here. But you can also see the, you know, the the impact of films like Altman, who was um, Paul Thomas Anderson's sort of uh, mentor to some degree, uh, and and of course the long goodbye. But uh, I love the character names, and of course the cast. The cast is spectacular. Benicio del Toro plays legal advisor Sancho Smilax. Owen Wilson is a surfer sax dude, Coy Harlington. Martin Short, coke to the gills, is Doctor Rudy Blatnoid. And Martin Donovan is money man Croker Fenway. Oh, oh, and Maya Rudolph as secretary Petuna Leeway. And other cameos include Reese Witherspoon, Michael K. Williams, Jenna Malone, Jillian Bell. Somewhere in there, there's a character named Puck Beaverton. And, you know, (laughs) if all that sounds like fun to you, then this is a movie for you for sure. That wraps up this case of the 116th episode of Lens Me Your Ears. And I hope you enjoyed this look at numerous so-called defective detectives over the course of the past hour. It was a lot of fun revisiting and uh, learning about some of these films, and I hope uh, you get to investigate some of them too. My name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Yeah, my name is Karsten Knox, and my Twitter handle is the name of my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. We're also on Facebook as Lends Me Your Ears. And we're also on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And as always, we'd like to thank the folks at CKDU who air the show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. and allow us the use of their studio facilities when we're allowed to get into the building uh, under normal circumstances. And of course, the good folks at Village Soundcast Network who put it all together and get it up on the podcast platforms. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next week. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.